Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Catherine Robertson writes funny stories about intelligent, strong women, and it's got her into trouble with people who think humorous women's fiction should never veer from the pink and fluffy. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Catherine talks about escaping labels, why her new book, Gabriel's Bay, gives men a bigger voice, and bridging the gap between literary and genre fiction. But before we hear from Catherine, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode are available on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Catherine's books and website, as well as information about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Catherine. Hello there, Catherine, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thanks, Jenny. Really nice of you to invite me. It's really fun to have a fellow countryman, country person or country woman because most of these interviews have been done with people overseas. So we wanted to get a little bit of balance in it. So beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction? And if so, was there a catalyst for it? I think I had always thought about writing fiction much in the same way as I'd thought about winning lotto. And I hadn't actually done anything about it, like buy a ticket or indeed do any kind of creative writing. But I, I mean, I got sort of, I had children quite young and I was self-employed from when I was 26 and there never seemed to be enough time to do anything like writing. But when I moved overseas, the family moved overseas in 2000 and I found myself out of a job because we'd gone to work for a dot-com and of course just at the time that the market tanked. And so my husband still had a job, but I didn't. And I had one, and the children were at school, and I suddenly had one of those now or never moments. And I looked up creative writing courses, and I found one in a local community college, and I started that. And that is when it started, and that, that did give me the confidence to keep going. Fantastic. So that was in um, California, I think. Was it, it was. That's right. Yes, it was yeah. in Marin County, just out of San Francisco. Fantastic. So. Your first book, how long did it take you from doing that course to producing your The Sweet Second Life of Daryl Kincaid, which was the first one we saw published, I think? That's exactly right. Uh, it, probably too long. I never, want to, I never want to put people off, but I did, between that time and getting Sweet Second Life published, I probably would have written eight full-length novel manuscripts and had them all rejected. Some of them were rewrites of previous ones that I'd done. Uh, but I, yeah, it took me, I, I probably didn't really start writing seriously until, because we moved around a bit and moved to England, then we came back to New Zealand, and I didn't, again, didn't really have the time to keep, you know, writing. Had to re-establish in business, all that sort of useful stuff like earning money. And I uh, started writing probably in about early 2005. So it was five years of solid effort before I got Sweet Second Life sold to a publisher. That is amazing. I mean, it, it is, there's so many people that I talk to. There is an apprenticeship time where you're finding your voice <laughs> and developing confidence. And you obviously went through that in quite a, a real way. 
Well, I think, I mean, I really like the Stephen King book on writing, and he talks about, um, you know, he thinks that bad writers are unteachable because they don't know that they're bad, so they can't be taught. But you can teach competent writers to be good. He also thinks that genius writers are, you know, born, not made as well. So we all, you know, most of us are in that good, competent to good range. And I think I started out as, a, I mean, all my life, I, my job was writing, so public relations, advertising, magazine writing. Uh, so I, you know, I knew how to write a sentence. That doesn't mean that you know how to write a novel. And that's what I had to learn how to do. I had to learn about structure. I had to learn about character arc. I had to learn about voice. I had to learn about dialogue, and so very much an apprentice process that I went through, teaching myself through feedback, through rejection. And you know, and the best kind of rejection is one where they give you decent comments about what they found didn't work. So those were absolute gold, and I just decided that I would continue to keep going and you know, learn what I could from that feedback and put it into practice. And so I think I turned myself from a fairly, you know, a basically competent writer but not a particularly competent novelist, into a competent competent novelist, and that's when I got published. Fantastic. Now, The Sweet Second Life was the first of a series of three books that all focused on women's stories with strong female characters, and I, they, they got categorised as, quote, triplet, which became a little bit of a problem a bit further on for you. And, but triplet, as Wikipedia defines it, is heroine-centred narrative that focus on the trials and tribulations of the protagonist. I guess for you that was a natural territory, being at the life stage you were at. But did you consider other genres? Well, the thing is that I'd always wanted to write a funny book. And so, I mean, all my sort of inspirations when I was growing up were funny writers. Sue Townsend and Stella Gibbons and Nancy Mitford and Bill Bryson and Clive James. I mean, I, you know, Woodhouse, of course, I love them. And so I wanted to write a funny book. And I had, I didn't, this is how, you know, sort of ignorant I was, I kind of didn't really realise that if you wrote a funny book about relationships, uh, you were instantly in that triplet category. I kind of knew that I was doing it because I knew that, you know, Marion Keyes wrote that sort of thing, etc. Bridget Jones, obviously. Um, I shouldn't call it Bridget Jones. It's actually Helen Fielding wrote Bridget Jones. I'm always refer yes. to it. I'm, I'm sure she gets called Bridget Jones, you know. <laughs> and um, but, so I kind of knew that, but I didn't really understand the expectations of that genre and I didn't understand that being marketed in that genre means that you are very much boxed up in this kind of pink fluffy category, you know, with everybody else who's writing similar kinds of books and uh, and so you don't get taken so seriously and you are also expected to write a certain tone of book for the reader. So when I started writing say, the, the third one, which was The Misplaced Affections of Charlotte Forbes, I wrote slightly darker, you know, I had sort of darker bits in it. And people didn't like that because they want an unrelentingly cheerful, happy, funny book. And so that's when I decided that I had to break out of that genre because I wasn't ever going to write anything that was <laughs> completely unrelentingly cheerful. Yeah, and you also ran into a bit of flack, I think, because your women were maybe a bit <laughs> too strong and their language was a little too salty and that also didn't quite fit the triplet trope. Was that, was that? No, yeah, that's exactly right. And I, and again, this is me just stumbling into areas that I, you know, issues that I didn't know existed. I mean, I thought women who were strong and kind of outspoken and in charge of their lives and, you know, just sort of like making it happen for themselves were really great. I thought that was a fantastic role model 
but I got a lot of flack because they weren't vulnerable. And I think that particular heroin is expected to be vulnerable, to have something wrong with them. And I kind of really railed against that. I didn't, I just didn't want, you know, I can have heroines that have, you know, things wrong with them or faults or flaws and as I would have done in The Hiding Places, which is the next book I wrote, but very much I didn't want that for these particular characters and to feel like I was forced to make them not so strong and to make, you know, put something wrong with them was just complete anathema to me. I really didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you think of the, particularly the Bridget Jones movies, she is a little bit of a pathetic case yes. in a way, isn't she? Yes, she is. I mean, appealingly so, and they're yeah. great funny books. And all that if you pick all the Marion Keys characters. I mean, I love Marion Keys, and her writing is hilarious. She's a brilliant humorist. But all her female characters have something wrong with them. And yeah. I was really I was really kind of angry with her because she has the um the Walsh sisters, you know, and the the Walsh family sort of there's a lot of books about them and she um the younger sister, Helen, had always been one of these strong, forthright characters throughout the whole book, you know, series of books. And then when she finally wrote a book about Helen, she gave a depression. And yeah. I was really angry with her for doing that. I thought, yeah. no, Helen's been just like full on for for all these books. And then all of a sudden, no, you had to give us something wrong with her. Like, no, don't do that. Yeah, and it's, uh, that Jennifer Weiner in the States has said mm. that, you know, it started out being fun, breezy, relatable, and very authentic. And it, and it sort of turned somewhere along the line, as far as the critics were concerned anyway, into disposable beach blanket fluff with no depth <laughs> of insight or meaning. So, yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. misogynistic, I think. I think it's just incredibly patronising. And I think it is a way of minimising women's work. And yeah. and the thing is, and it was a really great article, um, I think it was in The Guardian, about how it was called the male glance. Um, so sort of playing on that male gaze thing. But it was saying, this is worse, this is the male glance, when they look at it and just dismiss it with a glance. And mm. and the thing is, you know, that, that glance is not just, it's not just men who are doing it. It is... You know, I think there's a lot of women who who do dismiss things like romance writing and chiclet as things that are not worthy of their attention because they have had this, you know, sort of marginalisation of their worth happen through reviews, through a lot of, you know, this male dismissal. Um, but we've we've sort of, when people say chiclet to most readers, they go, oh, that pink fluffy stuff. So they don't even really know what it's about. They don't know what's in the genre, but they are already dismissing it. And yeah. I think that is something that we've been trained to do and we should untrain ourselves because it's a lot of fantastic writing and worthy writing. I mean, you get somebody like, you know, you get Carl Ovenausgaard who writes endlessly about the minutiae of his daily life, you know, and, mm. and in some cases quite tediously, and he's touted as a genius. You write yeah. women writing about domestic detail and they are dismissed, like Joanna Trollope is an Aga Saga, you know, because it's middle class in Britain. Mm. Or, you know, mm. some of these other ones, Jennifer, Jennifer Weiner, you know, is, is dismissed mm. as being, um, you know, it's mummy, mummy, suburban mummy stuff and things like that. And it's just like, it's quite irritating. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering if part of the problem is that we're, we're quite used to having strong women in New Zealand. We probably lead the world in it, considering we look at our past political history and even current political history with a PM who's just had a baby. Do you think that maybe we take 
some things for granted that aren't quite as accepted in other places as well. I think that New Zealand writers, because New Zealand is small, I mean, New Zealanders in general, we kind of, we are used to looking outward. And so we're very aware of the world, whereas people often in big countries are really only, they already have to be aware of that country. So they don't look outward as much. So we absorb a lot more kind of, you know, we're a lot broader in our outlook, and I think that does translate to our fiction. So we do think um, sort of outside the box, I suppose, and we do assume that we've got a freedom to write what we want, and we do. And so I think that, you know, and sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't fit what readers are expecting from a particular genre. So, yeah, I think New Zealanders, I think, yeah, I think we're probably a bit more open-minded in our writing and a bit more flexible and less likely to write like everybody else does, So, which is great, but um, sometimes readers want what everybody else is writing. <laughs> yeah. Um, having sort of talked a little bit about how the Tiglet thing is supposed to be all fun, your book number two had the great title of The Not-So-Perfect Life of Mo Lawrence, and it riffs very humorously on the lines of where book one ended, which was that she had the perfect life and she very smugly says, I know, isn't it wonderful? And then we discover in book two that it wasn't so wonderful. Um, I wonder if women find it reassuring to, to, to have a book that tells them that if you're trying to have it all, it is going to be jolly hard and you're not alone in that or something along those lines, that there is some reassurance in, in acknowledging the difficulties. I think that's what all chiclet, you know, if you want to call it that that genre, does. I think yeah. that is about, like, looking at the complexities of women's lives and the juggling acts that we have to do and the difficulty in actually being the drivers of our own, you know, lives and careers and because we're often torn between a bunch of different um, actual duties and kind of expected, like, societally imposed duties. And mm. so, and 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 it, it is a real struggle, and we're not really that free. We're certainly not as free as men to shape the way our life lives go. And I, that's why I think this genre is so important because it does give us this perspective uh, into how women's lives can be can be tricky and how people can navigate it. And you can have fun reading about it at the same time. Do you get feedback from readers that, that you know, really basically underlines that view that you've just presented? Do I? I probably, yeah, I can't think of anything that comes to mind, but I do have people sort of appreciate the fact that, for instance, um, Mo, Michelle's youngest, the baby, is is totally fierce and completely, you know, she's she's kind of a little small demon spawn, but completely in control of everybody. <laughs> And she's great. And people actually come, she's like, oh, I love Rosie. I love Rosie so much, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, it's funny, the, ba- it's the baby, the female baby is able to be fully in control and manipulative. But, you know, the adult female characters are not, which I find very interesting. So, yeah, I've had quite a lot of feedback about that sort of thing. Yeah, that's great. Um, your latest book, Gabriel's Bay, you've moved away a little bit from the, the triplet aspect. and It's also your first book that was set in New Zealand. Um, you said that in reaction to some of that, uh, that view that we've just been talking about, you wanted to try something with a broader appeal that still played to your strengths of characterisation, dialogue and humour. 
So tell us a little bit about Gabriel's Bay. Well, I think yeah, Gabriel's Bay came because I still wanted to write funny books, but I needed to find a way not to be kind of trapped or boxed into that triplet genre. So I actually did some sort of research trying to think of formats that would allow me to do that. And I ended up sort of lifting ideas from Maeve Bunchy and Deborah Mogark, who wrote The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. They've both written books uh, where there's a kind of a, a setting, so i.e., you know, The Marigold Hotel. And, mm. uh, and there are a bunch of different characters, and they all have their same stories. They all have their own stories. Um, and then those stories interlink to make kind of one novel. And I thought, this is what I could use. So that's what I based the Gabriel's Bay structure on. And I also wanted to be able to, because one of the things I got flat for was kind of dwelling too much on the, the male characters in my chiclet books. I wanted to give them life and agency and complexity. And I think a lot of the time people just want heroes, you know, and I didn't want to do just heroes. I wanted to do fully rounded men who were struggling with what it meant to be a man. And so I created, I wanted to create a bunch of characters where I could explore all different aspects of being female, being young, being old, being a male, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so that's how I, that's how I was thinking and approaching it. But I also wanted it to be funny. Yeah, yeah. And I think harking back to book one, you, you had a, a, a credit acknowledgement there quoting a friend who'd recommended a book that you said you absolutely adored and read several times, Destiny Bay by Don Byrne, which was a, a, a sort of family saga, I gather, set in Ireland. I must admit I've never heard of it before, but an Irish nobleman who marries a gypsy in 1889. And Don Byrne is known as a real storyteller. And I, I, I kind of got the feeling, when I saw that and compared it with Gabriel's Day, I thought... I bet there's a little seed that's been there for a long time that Catherine's kind of been going back to and nurturing in terms of the kinds of things she really enjoys. Would I, would I be right on that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Destiny Bay is a wonderful book. I mean, he wrote some... He was extraordinarily popular in his day, which was sort of like the 20s and 30s, and he died sort of re relatively young, I think, in the 40s in a motorcycle accident. And um, so Destiny Bay is a collection of stories that sort of moves through the years about this landowning Protestant, Northern Irish landowning family. And, uh, but it is delightful and absolutely wonderful. Just absolutely love it. Um, and yeah, so Gaggles Bay, I think, I've always wanted to pay homage, like sort of in the Sweet Second Life, kind of, the trilogy, I have gypsy characters who I've taken some of the names from Destiny Bay and used them and kind of riffed on some of those things that he talked about. Um, and I called Gabriel's Bay. This is a long-winded sort of like way to sort of come to a title. But I, I kind of wanted to call it Destiny Bay, but it's just too twee and it's existed and it's like, it's too obvious, you know. Yeah. So from Don Byrne, I got the actor Gabriel Byrne and called it Gabriel's Bay. So there you go. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. Wonderful. <laughs> Look, turning a bit away from specific books to the wider career, is there one thing, and I think I can anticipate your answer already, but is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret to your success? I would say keeping going. Yeah. 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 And I mean, the thing is, you don't, you know, in retrospect, if I knew that I was going to have to write eight full-length manuscripts uh, while juggling work and children 
and everything else in my life uh, before I got published, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I didn't know. So every novel, every time I submitted something else, you mm. think that could be the one, and then you mm. get the rejection. And it is, frankly, if you get a rejection, you've got you've only got two choices: you can stop and quit and give up, or you can keep going. So yeah, I just kept going and tried to take what I could from the feedback and continue to learn, teach myself. And so persistence, I think, is one thing, and also being I'm very organised with my time and. So I commit. Although I am a great procrastinator, I'm really, really talented at procrastinating. But I do put a lot of time aside and I use that time wisely for writing. And I also write when I don't feel like it, which is pretty much all the time because writing is really hard work. And I don't wait for the muse and I don't wait to feel like it. I just knuckle down and do it. And so I think that's probably it, is just keeping on going. So there's no likelihood that one of those eight manuscripts might be worth self-publishing. I mean, just because the trad industry doesn't quite see a market for it, it still might be a jolly good read. Well, the thing is they have all turned up. All those failures have been re-surfaced into the books that were successful. I have not wasted any ideas. If there were ideas that I liked in those books, trust me, I have picked the eyes out of those and I've put them in other books. So, you know, I keep phrases, I keep notes, I keep characters. And they will turn up. I will make them live again. So, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't wasted. It wasn't, it wasn't wasted, wasted, no. No, that's great. Look, you're, you're a master at bridging this gulf between the more literary end of the publishing spectrum and what's considered to be very much the genre end. You're vice president now at the moment of Romance Writers New Zealand. And I might say you're a very funny MC at annual conferences. <laughs> and you're also chair of the Wellington branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors, which is the serious guys in New Zealand. Um, how do you balance those two, and do you find that they sometimes make uneasy bedfellows? I have just actually stepped down as the chair of the Society of Authors. I did do that for four years. I'm also okay. on the Book Awards Trust, which um, yeah, I probably haven't updated my website, very likely. Uh, uh, but I'm also on the Book Awards Trust, and I who administer the New Zealand Book Awards, and I am also now on the board of LitCore, which is the literary festival that runs in November in Wellington. Oh, right. Um, yeah, exactly. And and we've just quite got a lot of experimental things and new works, and it's really great fun. Yeah. And so I think you know, and I pair, I do a lot of chairing at literary festivals. I think the groups, the different sort of genres, do have this perception that there's sort of like this literary clique and, you know, that it's very difficult to penetrate that world. And I haven't found it difficult at all because all I do is become interested in things and talk to people. And, I mean, all writers have got the same struggles. All writers have their own, you know, their doubts about their own worth. They have doubts about whether they can make a living, about whether they can get recognition, um, about whether they're going to get the next work published, whether the publishing mm. industry is dying and it's never mm. going to be revived, that the mm. arts that money is not going to be available. We all have those same worries and fundamentally, you know, it's the self-doubt sort of things that sort of connect us all. And I think no matter what you are writing, there's enough to connect you than there's more and you have more in common than you than you don't. Yeah. And so talking to writers in all genres 
and all you know forms of writing, non-fiction, poetry, spec-fic, romance, everything, uh, is a really great way to get a perspective on what you're doing. Yeah. And to also yeah. learn about how other people approach things. and Because the writing is a very solitary pursuit. And mm. so getting in touch and getting some context on how you feel about it and what's going on for you uh, with other people is like, fantastic. It's absolute gold. And we're all in the same boat. And the more we can kind of, I think, you know, bond together... Um, I think the sort of creative energy, you know, expands. And I think if we want creative work to be a force in New Zealand, we have to connect it, you know, it has to be a gestalt and we have to be greater than the sum of our parts. And we have yeah. to put that energy out there into the into the world and be a force to be reckoned with. Sounds really inspirational, my dear. <laughs> <laughs> Look, turning to Catherine as reader, we, this is called The Joys of Binge Reading and it's partly framed around the idea that people are a bit more inclined these days to, to binge read because of the ability to buy digitally online. Have you got authors that you binge read? And if so, who would you like to share with people? Oh, wow. I mean, yes, I do have authors that I binge read. Um, one of them is the late, great Terry Pratchett. I oh, go yes. through all his work. Then I reread them. Um, mm. Another one would be Sue Townsend, who wrote The Diary of Adrian Mole, and I reread her books. Fairly regularly, I reread Jane Austen on, you know, again regularly. I find <laughs> yes. it so wonderful. Um, oh, who else do I go back to? I go back to Nancy Mitford and Love in a Cold Climate, but I also go back to the non-fiction humorists. Um, I go and reread Bill Bryson and Clive James, and there's some brilliant um, British women. There's one a woman called Emma Kennedy who wrote these absolutely brilliant books. Uh, about travelling. One's called The Tent, The Bucket and Me and the other one's I Left My Tent in San Francisco and I think I cried so hard laughing reading those books. I actually physically hurt myself and I had to stop for a while. So they were utterly brilliant. I mean, David Sedaris as well, another brilliant non-fiction humorist. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously quite a few. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard of Emily Kennedy. I must, I must look her up. Oh, Emma, Emma Kennedy, Emma, Emma. Yeah. 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 Do, yeah. she's well yeah. worth it, yeah. <laughs> um, look, circling around, looking back and then looking forward, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything? I think I would join a writing group or I'd do another course. Because the course I did was, I mean, because there were a lot of people in the course and so you only got a little bit of... Um, time that's focused on you and your work and mm. and though you're learning by observing the feedback from, you know, was given to other people, it's, that's great. Mm. Uh, I did, having done, the reason I did the MA, I did that three years ago at um, the Institute of Modern Letters at Victoria University yes. was because it would be an intensive workshop situation and I'd be working with other writers and I'd never had that before and I did find that extraordinarily useful and so, and now I have a writing group. Um, we just held it last night, and we, you know, two of us at a time take turns to submit some writing. Uh, and it is, a, it's just incredibly valuable. I mean, I've critiqued um, Gabriel's Bay through my writing group, and I've and the sequel, which is coming out next year, which is called What You Wish For, and I, they are better books because I put them through my writing group. So having yeah. people that you that 
whose opinion you, you value and is of worth to you. Um, so not just, hey, yeah, I really like it, or your mum thinks it's great, that sort of thing. It's actually people who can critique it um, from a writing point of view. I would do that. Yeah, that, that's Earlier great. On. Yeah. Mm, mm. Um, I understand, that you, well, you mentioned you've written a sequel to Gabriel Bay. That's coming out next year? Yes, I don't know exactly when. Mm-hmm. It'd probably be, I mean, Gabriel Bay came out in January this year, so I'm sort of expecting it'll be... Yes, January, February next year, but I'm not entirely sure yet. Yes. And what's next for Catherine as writer? What new projects do you have under development? Well, I've done absolutely nothing this year, except um, in terms of writing, which is a bit sad. Uh, I have a... I did some research for a sort of a memoir bio based on my family's time in a fairly cult-like organisation. Not me, I didn't grow up in it. My parents had resigned before I was born but there's some interesting things and I'm uh, interviewed some people and I'm getting those interviews transcribed and I'm going to pull it all together and shape that up into something I'm not quite sure yet what mm. uh, and then I envisaged the Gabriel's Bay I always envisaged as a set of three books mm-hmm. at the least and so I've got a number three you know, sort of milling around in my head. So I will probably start that as well. That would be my main things. Mm, that's mm. a big project. So yeah. the memoir would that be non-fiction or? Fiction? Yes, it'll be it'll be non-fiction. So yeah. it'll be a kind of concentrating on my mother in particular and the effect of she was brought up in this organisation and uh, and then on my childhood, how it all affected my childhood. So it will be. Interesting to see whether I can pull it together. I mean, there's been some wonderful books like Diana Wichtel's Driving oh, yes. to Treblinka mm. or, you know, Adam Dudding's My Father's Island and mm. the New Zealand mm. ones. I mean, wonderful. Mm. And mm. so it's quite a high bar to enter into that field. So we'll see how we go. Sounds fascinating as well. We're coming to an end, actually, of our time together. So where can readers find you online? Well, I've got Facebook page. Um, so I can never remember the Facebook you know if you just look at Catherine Robertson New Zealand also you'll find me on Facebook yes and I'm on Twitter at I'm in at CJR author on Twitter yes and I am my website's there but that's really just information that I clearly need to update so I should probably go and do that now (laughs) (laughs) but Facebook I'm best on Facebook and um, Twitter is the second sort of you know um, tier to that do you spend much time on social media? I you know I spend a reasonable amount of time. I sort of like I observe more than I put on, um, but I'm very interested in it and I like it as a medium because I like to put little bits of news and stuff into it, and uh, and it's a good way to sort of tell people what I'm doing because I do things on the radio quite often, and uh, so it's quite a nice way to let people know what I'm up to, and yeah. also to sort of also to celebrate. I think it's a really great way to celebrate other authors. I think we, that's what we have to do. We have to be each other's cheerleaders. And so if there's news um, that my friends are launching or they've had a success or something like that, then I want to put that up there as well. Sure. And I, you probably do quite a few um, public meetings as well, either as, as a, a sort of running them. But do you do much in terms of promoting your own work by readings or meeting, up, meeting people, that kind of thing? Well, I do. I like. I really like sharing um, sessions at writers' festivals, you know, with other writers. Yes. It's a real. Yes. It's a real skill, and I'm just learning it. 
uh, but every session you do, you get better at it. And and I really enjoy that. I find that whole process quite it's, it's kind of terrifying, but it is it's really good fun, and it's a really good way of getting into other people's works as well. And then it gets you in front of people as well as with the audiences. Um, and then I like I mean I you know I like going on stage and talking about my own books. I did that in the Wairapa has a Yarns and Barns festival every two years and got to have a chat about Gabriel's Day and that, and that was great fun. And so, yeah, and uh, we'll, you know, obviously when the book comes out, I'll do launches and things like that. And mm. I'd love mm. to say yes to people invite me to festivals. I've got, I've got doing something at the National Writers Forum for New Zealand Society of Authors, and then I've got um, the Hawke's Bay Arts Festival coming up in October, which will be great fun. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much. You've also got Romance Writers in August, haven't you? But oh, I've got Romance Writers. Oh, and I've got in August, I've got, I've got Hamilton Book Month and the Word Festival in Christchurch, which I can't forget. Wow, you are you are getting around the country. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite full on the next few months, actually. <laughs> look, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fantastic talking to you. And um, it's, it's really, um, for someone who's only just starting out, it's, Amazing to think of the amount of work that went in before you even got a book published. So that's inspirational. It really is. That's good. That's good. Yes, keep going, people. Keep going. You can do it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Catherine. <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. Lovely to talk to you. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.